Welcome back, friends. I hope you guys have enjoyed the episode so far, and we are just moving right along. It's been a long November so far, and we're only 10, 12 days in. (laughs) Um, I don't know about you, but November has been very exhausting so far. Um, It's just, I feel like it's just been so busy, and it's been flying by, and I've got my bookshop that I've been trying to get everything done for uh, the, for Christmas and getting books posted, which I have a whole bunch of extra books. So again, I have an Etsy shop called Hidden Discovery Books, where I have a whole bunch of vintage books on there, hardbacks, paperbacks, cookbooks, um, and then a whole bunch of vintage items. I actually just posted a whole bunch of mugs. I, I love mugs. I'm obsessed with them. So, but I can't keep them all. Um, I already have a cabinet full. So I wanted to post some that I had found for you guys. So make sure to go check that out. Uh, this episode is about Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451. I discovered Ray Bradbury. I mean, I knew about him before, but I had read him for the first time earlier this year for a part of my book club. And I just fell in love with his writing style, the themes of his books. I own a few of his. Um, Of course, Fahrenheit 451 is my absolute favorite. It is just a wonderful book. So I definitely wanted to talk about Bradbury and the book and then some of his other stuff because right now I feel like it's very important to talk about books that changed our way of thinking, books that were banned because they challenged um, just society, books about censorship. Um, It's important to talk about those things. And if you're listening to this and you have not read Fahrenheit 451, I highly recommend it. If you have children that are in school and, you know, middle school, high school, and have not read this book, I really recommend that you sit down and either read it with them or have them read it. It's a short book. It won't take them very long, but I feel like they will learn a lot from it. So I will tell you, of course, why I love the book and what it meant to me, but we are going to talk a little bit about Ray Bradbury first. So he was born August 22nd, 1920 in Waukegan, Illinois. His mother was a Swedish immigrant and and his father was of English descent and he was a lineman. So they were just a normal, you know, just regular working family. Uh, His family traveled around a lot to find work. So he kind of hopped from place to place. After living in a few different places, the family ended up in Los Angeles where Bradbury went to school and Bradbury was um, really big into drama in school and wrote his first play at 14. Bradbury and his family lived during the Great Depression and truly understood the meaning of being poor. Bradbury wrote many stories on butcher paper because that was the only thing available to write on. He spent a lot of time at libraries, primarily the Carnegie Library, where he read authors like Wells, Verne, and Poe. He would often create stories of sequels to some of his favorite reads or create illustrations. He quotes that many of his inspirations came from the works of Wells and Verne. So I felt like he was very read from a young age, which I feel like we all <laughs> should be. I wish I would have been would have read classics like that whenever I was in middle school or high school, but... I'm just trying to make up time now. Uh, So his inspiration, a quote that he says is, um, the human being is a strange situation in a strange world. 
We can triumph by behaving morally. In his 20s, he switched from science fiction reading to literature and drew inspiration from Alexander Pope and John Donnie. His first published work was Hollabacher's Dilemma in 1938, which appeared in a magazine called Imagination with an exclamation point. So imagination. <laughs> he wrote a lot of fanzine and went to a lot of science fiction conferences where he met writers like Robert Heinlein, Frederick Brown, Henry Kittner, Lee Brackett, and Jack Williamson. In 1939, he joined the Laramie Days Wilshire Players Guild, where for two years he wrote and acted in plays. He quotes, though, that these times were really bad for him, and he gave up playwriting for a really long time. But I like how he is just, he bounces around just to figure out his niche, and I just love that he didn't stick to just one thing. Bradbury became a full-time writer by age 24 and started with short stories called The Dark Carnival, published in 1947 by Arkham House. Um, these books, these short stories were reviewed by the New York Herald by being suitable for general consumption and that his work was similar to, similar to John Collier. Later, he submitted a story to Mademoiselle, which was spotted by a young editorial assistant named Truman Capote, which is so interesting. Bradbury published Homecoming in the magazine, which won a place in the O. Henry, um, famous stories of 1947. Now this story, I read it and I loved it. I'm actually thinking about doing just a separate episode of me reading the whole, um, just short story. Cause it's not very long. It is about a family of vampires. And I tell you for his being like his true first story, it is just encapsulating with his writing of just how he explains everything. It is a truly enjoyable read. And it's, it says it's one of the leading, like, you know, spooky stories, which I just did my episodes over this. And of course I find out about it later, but it's such a good story. I loved it. But again, it's called homecoming. Um, so it was one of his first short stories. So he was married with four daughters, um, never got his driver's license and relied on public transportation or bicycles. He was raised Baptist, but he called himself a delicatessen religionist, resisted categorization of his beliefs. He wrote mostly in his garage um, or family members' garages, but that seemed to distract him. And one thing that I read, he said that his, when his girls got older, they would come and tap on the windows and knock and want him to play and he would never resist them. But, you know, him writing was how they made money. So he started going to the UCLA um, in the Powell library and wrote in the study room where you could rent typewriters, which is where he wrote the fireman. This is a quote, um, that he said about him writing in the library. There in neat rows were a score or more of old Remington or Underwood typewriters, which rented out at a dime a half hour. You thrust your dime in the clock ticked madly and you typed wildly to finish before the half hour ran out. Time was indeed money. I finished the first draft in roughly nine days. At 25,000 words, it was half the novel it eventually would become. Between investing dimes and going insane when the typewriter jammed and whipping pages in and out of the device, I wandered upstairs. There I strolled, lost in love, down the corridors and through the stacks, touching books, pulling volumes out, turning pages, thrusting volumes back, drowning in all the good stuffs that are in the essence of libraries. What a place, don't you agree, to write a novel about burning books in the future. 
Fahrenheit 451 is categorized as a dystopian novel published in 1953 by Ballantine Books in paperback. Later, it was produced in hardback and had 200 signed and numbered and bound copies, and the bound was asbestos. So I really hope that whoever has that knows that because that's probably really bad. And that's definitely a mistake when you look back that they bound it in asbestos. <laughs> now let's get into right into Fort Fahrenheit 451 by reading the first page. It was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten to see blackened and changed with the brass novel in his fists with this great Python spinning its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his head and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history with his symbolic helmet numbered 451 on his stolid head and his eyes all orange flame with the thought of what came next he flicked the igniter and the house jumped up in a gorging fire that burned the evening sky red and yellow and black. He strode in a swarm of fireflies. He wanted above all, like the old joke, to shove a marshmallow on a stick in the furnace while the flapping pigeon winged books died on the porch and lawn of the house. While the books went up in sparkling whirls and blew away on a wind turned dark with burning. Montag grinned the fierce grin of all men singed and driven back by flame he knew that when he returned to the firehouse, he might wink at himself, a minstrel man, burnt corked in the mirror. Later, going to sleep, he would feel the fiery smile still gripped by his face muzzles in the dark. It never went away, that smile. It never, ever went away, as long as he remembered. All right, so that was a little bit of a glimpse of Bradbury's writing. I personally have never read a book that I have fallen in love with within the first few pages, like I did with Fahrenheit 451. It, the writing style of Bradbury just blew me away. And I remember the first time I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, this book is amazing. And I'm like, I'm only three pages in. It's, it's wonderful. But I want to give you guys a summary real quick of what the book is about. So Guy Montag lives in a city in the future and is a fireman. But a fireman is not what we know, but it's a person who burns houses with books in them. His life is normal. He goes to work, comes home to his wife, follows what society tells him to do, and he thinks his life is great, up until he meets a young girl. Clarice is carefree and talks of odd things like nature and happiness. She asks him, are you happy? And he can't seem to find the words to answer her. He then looks forward to his discussions with her, uh, walking up and down the street, until one day she doesn't show up and he finds that she's been killed in a car crash. The book then goes to an assignment um, to burn a house full of books, which is his normal job. He shows up with his crew and it's a big, huge old house. And the woman and man have stashed thousands of books stacked just so high in the attic. While they start to douse everything in kerosene and eventually um, fighting with the woman, she kills herself in the house with all of the books protesting the burning of them. During this time, he unconsciously puts a Bible under his arm and takes it with him. From then on, he starts stealing books here and there while they're on assignments and starts questioning his life, the people around him, and the job that he thought he loved and had purpose with. 
Montag starts asking around of why books were banned and is told by his chief that people lost interest in reading after the advent of television and that objections to some passages in books, but interest groups and minorities led to censorship. Eventually, books and learning created inequality and unhappiness, and so books were banned. Montag starts trying to read and takes refuge in, the old, in an old professor, realizing that the life he is leading and the society that he is a part of has no purpose or meaning and is going down a dark and dangerous path. Eventually, when friends are over, he tries to engage in true conversation, which the friends do not respond to. After reading from a poetry book to the supposed friends, he finds that his house the next day is on the list to be burned. Then the book leads into a manhunt for Montag and a change in him will th that will alter his entire existence. So, of course, I still try to just give like teaser summaries. I don't want to tell you the whole book. Um, it was kind of hard to tell a teaser summary with this book because it's just jam-packed so full of information. And I just, I didn't want to give anything away. So I want to talk more about his writing style. Um, because it's just, it really just drags you in from the very beginning. His descriptions of just small moments are just fantastic. So I wanted to read you a part where he is, um, right after he meets, um, Clarice and he's just describing her. So it says, what incredible power of identification the girl had. She was like the eager watcher of a marionette show, anticipating each flicker of an eyelid, each gesture of his hand, each flick of a finger, the moment before it began. How long had they walked together? Three minutes? Five? Yet how large that time seemed now. How immense a figure she was on the stage before him. What a shadow she threw on the wall with her slender body. He felt that if his eye itched, she might blink, and if the muscles of his jaw stretched in perceptibly she would yawn long before he would why he thought now i think of it she almost seemed to be waiting for me there in the street so damned late at night so when we talked about this book um of course he lives in a society where everything is controlled and of course he grew up in it and not knowing anything differently so one of the main the first things they talk about in the book is a notion of vehicles so they all drive these beetle vehicles. Um, I don't really know if that has any purpose, but they go so fast. Everybody drives a hundred miles an hour. And therefore, because everybody is driving so fast, they're impatient to get somewhere. These, they have these billboards that are just huge. They're miles long. They have to make the billboards bigger so that people who are driving so fast can see them. They also talk about the houses. They all look the same. They're all fireproof. Do they talk about old houses? They put this coating on it to make them fireproof. Um, there are no front porches. It makes a comment in the book that after they realized that people conversating together, sitting out on porches, talking of ideas and opinions was a bad idea. So they removed all the front porches. People don't walk up and down the street. They don't go on strolls. They don't sit and conversate. That's just, that's not what happens. They talk about in these houses, the TVs are these huge walls of just floor to ceiling TV. And it's bright, it's loud, filled at all times with noise. If someone is not watching TV, they have these, you know, earbuds in their ears of constant music 
and noise just encompassing everything around them, there's no silence. And it's almost like they're being brainwashed. So it talks about that log. Of course, the firemen are burning books because books have ideas and opinions that are wrong, that create just bad thoughts in people's heads. And, you know, the people in them are not real. So, of course, the books have to be burned. And everybody's just okay with this. They all just live their lives. So it it really mentions that he comes home and his wife just, it's almost like she's a zombie. She just does the same thing every day. There's a a part in the book that was a little, um, it really got to me. It was one of the main parts of the books that I was just like, man, I can't even imagine living in a world where something so bad is so normalized. So Montag gets home um, after working and finds that his wife has overdosed on sleeping pills. So she took the whole bottle. He finds the empty bottle on the ground. So he calls emergency and two men just show up with this big machine and they pump her stomach. They, it describes it. It puts this big long tube down her throat into her stomach, pumps her stomach, and then they pump all the blood out of her system And they say this is normal. They do this nine, ten times a day that people do it all the time. They just clean them out and let them go. And that's it. And I found that really disturbing that a society could be just so okay with people overdosing over and over and over again. Another part of the book that was disturbing was the part that they talk about going to the house where they burn all the books, where Montag first realizes, like, what am I doing? And he talks about unconsciously grabbing this book and putting it under his arm and taking it with him. And the book is actually the Bible. Um, But he doesn't, he says his hand is of its own mind and that he just takes it with him. But the part that they go into this old house and there's just thousands of books that these people have just been keeping secret for years and years and years. And they just go in and they just douse it all in kerosene and just burn it. And the the husband, you know, kind of obeys and he goes out and kind of is defeated. The woman, the wife, however, does not let it go. Those are her books. Those are her, you know, it's her life. And she decides to burn with them that she cannot live without these books. And it was a very heartfelt moment in the book. And it made you really realize like, my gosh, like what kind of world are these people living in? Another part is that when Montag is traveling, um, after he, you know, does the book burning and takes the book home, um, he is on a subway and the subway plays this constant song over and over and over again. It's the same words. So it's almost like a mechanism to get someone to remember something. And it just makes a comment that no matter where you go, there's always noise. And I feel like that speaks very true to our current society where a lot of people cannot just sit in silence and just revel in the, you know, just the wonderfulness of nothing that there always has to be a TV going or music or, you know, whatever. And I feel like that can be very, um, almost like a prison 
in your own world if you cannot just sit and enjoy silence. So that part I just found very eerie with just all of it. And plus, Bradbury was just way beyond his times. He talks of huge floor to ceiling TVs when back when this was published, you know, TVs were small, the tube TVs, black and white. If you had a color TV, you were rich. Um, he talks of these huge TVs, this, you know, earbuds in the ears, which, you know, that was just way, 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 way before his time. It's just, it's so awesome that he thought of something that could have never even happened in that day. And of course, there's also talks of the robot dogs. So the firemen have this robot dog that can sniff out people, sniff out books. Um, that, of course, is beyond his time. It just really, I wish I could pick his brain and say, like, how did you come up with this stuff? But that really adds to the book and creates almost a fear of, you know, oh my gosh, is this our future? Another thing that they talk about um, in the book is a portion of the book where they have friends over and it's just a normal, you know, it's the same thing over and over. The friends come over and all they ever do is just watch TV and watch programs because that's all anybody ever does, you know, in this world. Um, So I'm going to read this part because I feel like it really taught, it really sets the story for kind of how the writing is and how the book is. So I'm going to read this for you real quick. He was eating a light supper at nine in the evening when the front door cried out in the hall and Mildred ran from the parlor like a native fleeing an eruption of Vesuvius. Mrs. Phelps and Mrs. Bowles came through the front door and vanished into the volcano's mouth with martinis in their hands. Montag stopped eating. They were like a monstrous crystal chandelier tinkling in a thousand chimes. He saw their Cheshire cat smiles burning through the walls of the house, and now they were screaming at each other above the den. Montag found himself at the parlor door with his food still in his mouth. Doesn't everybody look nice? Nice. You look fine, Millie. Fine. Everyone looks swell. Swell. Montag stood watching them. Patience, whispered Faber. I shouldn't be here, whispered Montag, almost to himself. I should be on my way back to you with the money. Tomorrow's time enough. Careful. Isn't this show wonderful, cried Mildred. Wonderful. On one wall, a woman smiled and drank orange juice simultaneously. How does she do both at once, thought Montag, insanely. In the other walls, an x-ray of the same woman revealed the contracting journey of the refreshing beverage on its way to her delighted stomach. Abruptly, the room took off on a rocket flight into the clouds. It plunged into a lime green sea where blue fish ate red and yellow fish. A minute later, three white cartoon clowns chopped off each other's limbs to the accompaniment of immense incoming tides of laughter. Two minutes more and the room whipped out of town to the jet cars wildly circling an arena, bashing and backing up and bashing each other again. Montag saw a number of bodies fly in the air. Millie, did you see that? I saw it. I saw it. Montag reached inside the parlor wall and pulled the main switch. The images drained away as if the water had been let from a gigantic crystal bowl of hysterical fish. The three women turned slowly and looked with unconcealed irritation and then dislike at Montag. When do you suppose the war will start? He said. I notice your husbands aren't here tonight. Oh, they come and go, come and go, said Mrs. Phelps. And again, out again, Finnegan, the army called Pete yesterday. He'll be back next week. The army said so. Quick war. 48 hours, they said, and everyone home. That's what the army said. Quick war. 
Pete was called yesterday and they said he'd be back next week. Quick. The three women fidgeted and looked nervously at the empty mud-colored walls. I'm not worried, said Mrs. Phelps. I'll let Pete do all the worrying, she giggled. I'll let old Pete do all the worrying, not me. I'm not worried. Yes, said Millie. Let old Pete do the worrying. It's always someone else's husband dies, they say. I've heard that too. I've never known any dead men killed in a war. Killed jumping off buildings, yes, like Gloria's husband last week. But from wars? No. Not from wars, said Mrs. Phelps. Anyway, Pete and I always said, no tears, nothing like that. It's our third marriage each and we're independent. Be independent, we always said. He said, if I get killed off, you just go right ahead and don't cry, but get married again and don't think of me. That reminds me, said Mildred. Did you see that clear dove five minute romance last night in your wall? Well, it was all about this woman who Montag said nothing, but stood looking at the women's faces as he had once looked at the faces of saints in a strange church he had entered when he was a child. The faces of those enameled creatures meant nothing to him, though he had talked to them and stood that church for a long time, trying to be of that religion, trying to know when that religion was trying to get enough of the raw incense and special dust of the place into his lungs and thus into his blood to be a feel touched and concerned by the meeting of the colorful men and women with the porcelain eyes and blood ruby lips. There was nothing, nothing. It was a stroll through another store and his currency strange and unusable there and his passion cold, even when he touched the wood and plaster and clay. So it was now in his own parlor with these women twisting in their chairs under his gaze, lighting cigarettes, blowing smoke, touching their sun-fired hair and examining their blazing fingernails as if they caught fire from his look. Their faces grew haunted with silence. They leaned forward at the sound of Montag swallowing his final bit of food. They listened to his feverish breathing. The three empty walls of the room were like the pale brows of sleeping giants now empty of dreams. Montag felt that if you touched these three staring brows, you would feel a fine salt sweat on your fingertips. The perspiration gathered with the silence and subaudible trembling around and about in the women who were burning with tension. Any moment they might hiss a long, spurtering hiss and explode. Montag moved his lips. Let's talk. The woman jerked and stared. How are your children, Mrs. Phelps? He asked. You know, I haven't had any. No one in their right mind, the good Lord knows, would have children, said Mrs. Phelps, not quite sure why she was angry with this man. I wouldn't say that, said Mrs. Bowles. I've had two children by cesarean section. No use going through all that agony for a baby. The world must reproduce, you know. The race must go on. Besides, they sometimes look just like you, and that's nice. Two cesareans turn the trick. Yes, sir. Oh, my doctor said, cesareans aren't necessary. You've got the hips for it, and everything's normal, but I insisted. Cesareans are not. Children are ruinous. You're out of your mind, said Mrs. Phelps. I plunk the children in school nine days out of ten. I put up with them when they come home three days a month. It's not bad at all. You heave them into the parlor and turn the switch. It's like washing clothes. Stuff laundry in and slam the lid, Mrs. Bowles tittered. They just as soon kick as kiss me. Thank God I can kick back. So I hope that gave you a little bit of a taste of just how empty these people's lives are. They seem incredibly selfish. They only care about themselves. There's no meaning behind anything. And, you know, Montag realizes this and realizes that, you know, just outside of the books is that this life is just wrong. 
and starts to protest against it and wants to do something about it. And, you know, seeks the friend Faber in the part that I was reading is the professor that he, um, you know, looks towards to try to fix all of this. And this in our, in my book club, a lot of people brought up the fact that this speaks towards, you know, our dependence on social media and, you know, TV and, you know, Facebook and phones and, you know, just doing all of that. But it's not about that. It's not about how our world is dependent on these things. It's about conformity versus individuality. It's about going with what someone tells you and not having your own mind to speak against it. It's having the media tell you something and another media channel tell you something else and you don't know what to believe. So you do not believe at all. It's not having your own opinion. It's not standing up for yourself. It's not sitting down with a whole bunch of like-minded people and having a healthy conversation just about the world. It's about being numb and just going to work and not talking, minding your own business, just not having any thought at all. And that's what scares me about this book is that I feel like a lot of people push towards that. They lose their individuality. And it's important to be strong with yourself and strong in your opinions and, you know, research what you know and, you know, don't just trust the first thing that comes across. There's a part in the book where it talks about when Montag, um, after he reads books aloud and is found out, he finds out that his house is on the list to be burned. He runs off and the media is chasing him. The police are chasing him. The firemen are chasing him. And the media are following like a helicopter and he ends up escaping, but finds out that the media killed another person or the police killed another person and the media portrayed it as killing him. So that is the media portraying what you want to see. There's another part in the book where it talks about when they burn houses that people come out and watch the light show. That is having... that's turning a blind eye to the situation. And that's what I like about Bradbury bringing these up that, you know, makes the situation where it sounds scary. You don't want to live in a world like this, but if you just conform, you will live in a world like this. We have to be strong in ourselves and strong in our opinions and know what is right and stand up for ourselves and don't let the media or, you know, other things, the government or whatever, tell us what to do and lie. And all of this really came from his inspiration. So the part that he, all of this, you know, the time period that he got his inspiration from um, was during the 1940s and 1950s. And his main inspiration was the book burning that was happening during the war. um, And then also in the United States. And also his inspiration came primarily from the McCarthy era. So McCarthyism is the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason, especially when related to communism without regard to evidence. This movement was started by Senator Joseph McCarthy, and he created the House of Un-American Activist Committee. And 
with the second rare second red scare of 1940s to 1950s um this heightened political repression and had a campaign for spreading fear of communist influence on american institutions during this era hundreds of americans were accused of being communists and were subjected to aggressive investigations by government or private industry panels or committees. Government employees, the entertainment industry, academics, and labor union activists were all targeted and they mostly lost their jobs, careers, and some were even imprisoned. This book had a huge impact on its readers for its time. And there's a reason why this book was banned by schools because it pushes the point of censorship and, you know, conformity and talks about how bad all of those things are. And, you know, back in its day, people had a problem with that. So I always find it interesting when you're reading a banned book, because I, it just, it speaks volumes for what it teaches you. This book, I did not get to read in school. And this book would have taught me so much more than some of the other books that I read. Now, Bradbury attributes his writing style to John Steinbeck by learning how to write objectively and yet insert all of the insights without too much extra comment. He also attributes Eudora Wetley by remarkable ability to give atmosphere, character, and motion in a single line, which speaks a lot to his writing. That's just a perfect definition of it. Now, Bradbury loved libraries and um, his motivations came from libraries themselves. Bradbury worked to prevent the closure of libraries in California and donated a lot of money. He said, libraries raised me. I don't believe in colleges and universities. I believe in libraries because most students don't have money. When I graduated high school, it was during the depression and we had no money. I couldn't go to college. So I went to the library three days a week for 10 years. He also told the Paris Review, you can't learn to write in college. It's a very bad place for writers because the teachers always think they know more than you and they don't. Looking forward, um, he, with the, com with computers, he was really for them, but he did resist his work to be put into eBooks. And in 2011, Bradbury allowed the electronic version, um, to be done by Simon and Schuster, but it was to be downloaded by a library patron. So on the only book in the Simon and Schuster catalog to do this. Now, another thing that whenever um, Fahrenheit 451 was published by Ballantine Books, it was it published in its full version. And then they came out later with a um, censored version. So it was called a, a Bal High edition. And they took out a lot of words um, that they considered bad. So it was, you know, words like damn hell um abortion was one of them um and then they went so far as to censor further and take out um you know whole parts of the book if it said someone was um drunk they would say someone was sick they just completely changed the book and you know at that time they were you know going back and forth and printing both. And then it got to the point that they were only printing the censored version until Ray Bradbury figured out in 1981 and made them change all of them. So it's just astonishing to me that he wrote a book about censorship and was censored 
for doing it. And the publisher didn't even ask him to do it. They just did it him, you know, themselves. And that's just, that's crazy to me. I would love to find a censored version and read it and see how different it is. Um, but I'm so glad that he caught it and stood up for what was right. And, you know, had it turned around where from then on, they did not, you know, print any more censored versions. So Bradbury suffered a stroke in 1999, but continued to write the best he could. Uh, when he passed, he's buried in the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. He was a huge influencer for many films, comics, adaptations, and more. And he even helped design Spaceship Earth and Epcot at Walt Disney World. The New York Times labeled him as the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. I hope you enjoyed this. Again, Ray Bradbury is a fantastic writer, and I highly recommend that you at least read Fahrenheit 451. He has lots of other books. I personally also have Martian Chronicles, S is for Space. Um, he's got a ton more. He also has one that's kind of out of the science fiction called Dandelion Wine. And again, his first published in the magazine Homecoming is about, it's a little darker. It's spooky. It's about vampires. Um, it's a really good read. I'm, I might read it. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I might do an episode of it. Um, but pick it up and read it. I do have a couple of them available on my shop, a couple paperbacks. So if you want to head over there and look and see if you want to buy one now, there are a couple on there. Other than that, I really hope that you guys learned a lot and I hope this motivated you to read it. See you next time. Mm -hmm.